All right. Um, well, we're going to open up our Bibles in just a moment, um, but I've got an opening question for you. Have you ever changed your mind about something? You thought you could never look at something differently and somehow there's a paradigm shift in your thinking? Like you watched or heard or experienced something so wonderful, so weird, and so amazing that you looked at life, your relationships, and your circumstances in a completely different way. And, you know, to a certain degree, I'm sure all of us have had all these moments, these, these aha moments, that, that moment of clarity where things just clicked and made sense for you. For some of you, uh, maybe it was the persistence of a really patient teacher who took time to explain a concept to you. For some of you, maybe it was this uh, amazing illustration of some youth pastor explaining the unpredictability of water. For others of you, maybe it was uh, biblical counseling and that through it, uh, you saw your life in a completely different and new way. But as we've seen these past couple of years, to change your mind, let alone someone else's, is actually pretty rare. There have been many documented studies that demonstrate the opposite effect called the backfire effect. When we're confronted with counter-evidence that disproves what we believe, the counter-evidence actually strengthens our own pre-existing beliefs, hence the backfire. So for example, the more I tell Pastor Kim that pho is the greatest noodle soup ever created, Pastor Kim doubles down that pho is the worst noodle soup ever created. The backfire effect shows that facts and reason alone don't always change people's minds. Even when, change, even when people change, it's slow. You don't just have a conversation with your friend about XYZ controversial topic over lunch and then have your mind changed at the end of lunch. It doesn't work like that. Very rarely does it ever happen when we share the gospel with our friends and they say, you know what? You're right. I do need God. I am a sinner. I need Jesus and I am in need of his redemption. I've, like, I've, I've had zero success with that. And so in a world where it's incredibly rare for anyone to change their minds, how do people change their minds over the most fundamental things that they believe? Under what circumstances does changing your mind actually happen? Well, I've got a brief story, maybe not a little, maybe not brief, but uh, Zelena grew up under the tropical climate of Samoa in the same beach house she lived all her life. Samoa, the island, not the Girl Scouts cookie. And the distance between the, out, the ocean and her house was just a small road, and the sun sank between the mountains of her backyard, and because the, the island was so small, uh, Zelena had a tight-knit group of friends. Uh, she was surrounded by tons of uh, friends and family members from church, and then when Zelena was 15, her and her family moved to Whittier, Alaska. Zelena's father took a call to be a pastor of a church in, uh, in a, a small church in Alaska. And so in her sophomore year of high school, Zelena, along with her three siblings and parents, packed up their bags, left the home that they had known all their lives, got on a plane and headed north without knowing a thing about where they were going. Whittier is the complete opposite of tropical Samoa, whereas the town that Zelena had lived in in Samoa was sprawled all around the island, the entire town of Whittier was condensed into one old giant 15-story building. Every Whittier resident lived in the building. Apartments, the school, the post office, the grocery stores, the church that Zelena's father was helping out were all in that one building. All six people in Zelena's family were crammed into a tiny apartment in that 15-story building in Whittier. 
She shared a bed with her nine-year-old sister and could hear her neighbors' conversations through the walls. And because the school was so small, a bunch of them were also in Zelena's classroom. In Samoa, Zelena looked forward to her senior year of high school going to prom, homecoming, attending football games like many of you guys do. But in Whittier, Zelena shared a class with her seventh grade brother. There was another girl, girl her age too, but when Zelena tried introducing herself, the, the girl blew her off. And so Zelena did what a, a lot of teenager, teenagers might do. They, she just shut down. She hated Whittier. But then one day, Zelena's perspective of Whittier changed. In a world where it is so rare to change your mind, Zelena's mind about Whittier changed. Zelena stopped seeing Whittier as an inescapably gloomy place, but as a place of, in her words, enclosed serenity. She stopped seeing her building as drab and claustrophobic, but intimate and inviting. The mountains of Whittier no longer looked ugly. They were beautiful. In Zelena's own words, she says, it was kind of like I tripped and then, boom, I fell in love with Whittier. All the things that Zelena used to hate about Whittier are the things that Zelena now loves about it. How does someone like Zelena change her mind like that? Well, it was all because of a new friend that she met. Remember the girl that, Zelena had, uh, that, uh, that blew Zelena off? That, that same girl asked if she wanted to walk down the ocean with her and her dog. And it was because of this fateful dog walk that Zelena and Sophia became friends, best friends even. And it was because of Sophia, because of this great friendship that Zelena herself changed. Her, her perspective changed. It was because of this relationship with a precious friend that became the paradigm shift for how she saw her life and her circumstances. And similarly, in our passage, our final passage in Job, in Job chapter 42, we see Job changing even when his circumstances have not changed. We see Job changing even though he's still sitting in the ruins and ash heap of his life. He is sitting not too far from the place where he buried his sons and daughters. He is still suffering. He is still sitting with his dodo friends and Elihu the menace. He is still covered in boils and cuts all over his body. He is barely hanging on to his life. But Job surely still is changing. Job is having his own aha moment, his turning point, his paradigm shift on the ash heap. He's beginning to see his circumstances, his suffering, and his God in a different and new light. And you might be wondering, how? Can that be? It was all because of a deepened friendship with God. Job ends up in the same physical location as he was in the beginning. But the difference is that Job now has a deeper, far deeper experience and trust of God. Like Zelena, what changed for Job was simply a relationship. Over the course of our time in the book of Job, it's likely that many of the trials difficulties, sufferings, annoyances, and frustrations that you have faced haven't gone away. You're still enduring them. Do you remember my friend from uh, our very first message in the book of Job? The one who was abused and manipulated by the people that she trusted in her own church's youth group? The one whose father passed away because of COVID? The one who's in a legal battle with her half-siblings? She faces, she faces things today that she'll have to deal with for the rest of her life. I mean, things haven't really changed for her. And over the course of our time in the book of Job, Megan and I still haven't had kids yet. But over the course of our time in the book of, book of, the, book of Job, by the grace of God, 
I am changing. By the grace of God, my friend has changed during her trials as well. And I hope by the grace of God, you can say that you've changed too. That we look at our circumstances differently, that we've had our own aha moment. What our passage tonight is showing us is that you can change. You can change. You can look at your life differently. You can look at your circumstances differently. Our passage promises that you can change, and it's all because of a relationship, the most important relationship of all, a relationship with God. And that brings us to our key idea. What we see in the response of Job is three changes that are promised in a relationship with God. Three changes that are promised in a relationship with God. The first change is that a relationship with God promises a renewed understanding. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Job chapter 42. We're going to look at verses 1 to 2. It's the start of time. And this is what the apostle, uh, this, <laughs> the, apostle, uh, this is what, um, the author of Job writes. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If this sounds like deja vu, it's because it is. I'm just kidding, it isn't. There's something different going on in Job's second response to God compared to his first. After God takes Job on a tour of the natural world, Job's first response is silence. But here, Job's response is fuller and different. Why? It's because after God takes Job on a tour of the natural world, as Leighton showed us last week, God shows off, shows off two creatures that belong to the supernatural world, behemoth and leviathan. And the TLDR of behemoth and leviathan is that they both represent and personify supernatural evil. And that God will take care of not only natural evil in the world and the human injustices that we experience, but that God will also take care of all supernatural evil and all supernatural injustice that occurs behind closed doors. And the point is that God is and will comprehensively deal with all evil that exists in our natural world and in the supernatural world. God will deal with it. And the implications here are endless. God will tend to your pain. He will fight for you. And I know we say this over and over again, but, but it's because we honestly just forget it over and over again. We just glaze over it. But God will wipe the tears from your face. He will hold your hand. He will set all things right. He will mend what was broken. He will restore you. He will eradicate evildoers. He will punish the wicked. He will bring just, justice to the unjust. He doesn't tell us, and Job when. All he says is that he will. That is something that we can bank our lives on. God will deal with all manners of evil, natural and supernatural. And so what we come to realize and know is that God hasn't mismanaged the universe as Job had previously thought. God is infinitely more aware of it than Job ever could be. It's like Job was just looking at his entire life and his circumstances up to this point in 2D. And so I've, uh, I've, I've been on an object lesson kick, as some of you guys have known. Um, I don't know why. I hear you guys love it. So here's another one. I have with me a Frisbee, okay? A Frisbee, right? It says uh, Lighthouse Youth. <laughs> um, a Frisbee is shaped 
in a circle, right? And this is how Job has been looking at his life, just on a two-dimensional plane, a circle, okay? He's been seeing everything in 2D, just circles. And what God has been showing Job in these past four chapters is this basketball. I mean, not just this basketball. God sees everything in 3D. God is saying, look, Job, things are a lot more dimensional than you realize. You think that all that there is is this natural world, but I'm managing the supernatural. You only see circles, but I see spheres, bro. God has been expanding Job's vision and understanding. God is what some of you might call big brain. You can hashtag that. It's the reason why Job now says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I mean, of course Job knew that. In his anger and in his grief, he confessed the same thing back in chapter 9. But now it's different. His vision has expanded. God's sovereignty is no longer hostile for Job, but good. It's trickled from his head now down to his heart. And it's starting to finally click for Job. All along, I thought God was just out to get me, but I was wrong. All along, I thought God just didn't like me, but I was wrong. All along, I thought God just hated me, but I was wrong. All along, I thought that God was mad at me, but I was wrong. Job is, is changing. That's the reason why he quotes God in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. He, it says, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I mean, that's something that God says to Job. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I mean, this is Job's big, my bad moment. Job talked about something that he knew nothing about. Job is the perfect case of what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Job thought he knew everything about God and the world. But the problem is that the more competent you, you think you are, or the more you think you know, the less aware you are of your own actual lack of knowledge or ability. And I think the, the comic in your notes illustrates this well. Let's read it together. In the left-hand side, top left corner, the more you know, the harder it is to, to take decisive action, says Calvin. You know, once you become informed, you start seeing complexities and shades of gray. You realize that nothing is as clear and simple as it first appears. Ultimately, knowledge is paralyzing. Being a man of action that I can't afford to take that risk. You're ignorant, but at least you act on it. The point is that Job had no idea what he was talking about. That is the Dunning-Kruger effect. And so how is Job changing? Take a look at verses 4 to 6. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself. Thanks, Wayne and repent in dust and ashes. Job considers everything that he has known about God up until this point as hearsay, as a rumor. The literal Hebrew translation is a report of the ear. In other words, everything that Job has heard or known about God is mere gossip, just a bunch of half-truths about God. Everything that Job has previously known is nothing compared to what he now knows about God. And what he truly knows about God now is the same as seeing God. Job is saying, God, I see, who, I see you for who you really are. A God who is for me, not against me. A God who is not out to get me, 
A God who, is, who isn't mad at me, but a God who loves me and likes me. A restored relationship with God, a deepened relationship with God, a true understanding of God leads to a renewed understanding of how Job sees his life, his circumstances, and even his God. And it's in the midst of this change that Job feels so bad about what he has said about God that he says he despises himself. But I don't think that's an accurate translation. First of all, the better translation is, I reject. And second of all, our English Bibles supply myself because there's no direct object in the Hebrew. And so the literal translation is actually, therefore, I reject. But what is it that Job rejects if the Hebrew doesn't tell us? The context makes the answer obvious. Job rejects all the false conclusions that he made about God. Job rejects all of his unworthy thoughts of God. He rejects every false thing that he has ascribed to God. It's a complete denial and renunciation of all the understandably but nevertheless wrong things he has ever said about God. Job deconstructs every false conclusion about God and from his deepened relationship with God, reconstructs a deeper understanding of him. Job isn't repenting of any sins that his friends have been accusing of. Because again, the whole point of the book of Job is that Job is innocent. Job's greatest regret is that he wished he knew God better. Job's greatest regret is that he arrogantly assumed that he had God all figured out. Because finally, here on the ash heap, at the precipice of life and death, Job finally sees God. Job finally sees God for who he really is. One commentator writes that Job is not merely intellectually convinced about some new idea about God. He is entirely taken up with God himself. And in understanding and seeing God for who he really is, Job begins to have a renewed relationship with his suffering. You'll notice again in your Bibles that there's a footnote for repent, right? You guys see it in your Bibles? Can someone tell me what the footnote says? Anyone? What was that? Am comforted, right? You guys see that in your footnotes? It should, be, it should say am comforted. If not, you have an older translation. <laughs> okay, it says am comforted, okay? The word for repent simply means change, and in other contexts, it can mean relent, but it doesn't make sense to say, I change in dust and ashes, or I relent in dust and ashes. Like, what does that even mean? That's why I think it's better to translate verse 6 as am comforted in dust and ashes, now, why does any of this matter? It matters because if this translation is accurate, then Job is saying that he is comforted in dust and ashes. Has Job's deeper relationship with God turned him into a masochist? No. It's that Job's deepened relationship with God has transformed and renewed the way that he sees his own sufferings. And again, it's important to remember where Job is is when he says this. He is still on the ash heap. He is still missing his dead children, still alienated from his friends, still covered in sores, still close to death. He has no idea that all of his sufferings is about to end. Nothing about Job's circumstances have changed, but the thing is, Job has. 
The only change that has happened is Job's deepened relationship with God. Nothing else has changed. And while Job's external circumstances remain just as miserable, Job is comforted despite all of his losses because he knows God deeper. I mean, doesn't the Apostle Paul say something similar? Indeed, I count all things, my circumstances, my grades, my college rejections, my future, everything. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All that Job gains from his suffering is God and more of God. Job gets something better than better circumstances. Job gets God. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot once wrote that the focus of the scriptures is Christ in me, not me in better circumstances. Whatever happens after verse 6 is just the cherry on top. Whatever Job gains after verse 6 is just the frosting on the cake. Job has gotten the primary and the only thing that he has ever wanted God himself. Job utterly and totally passes the test. Because if you'll remember, Job's sufferings happened in the first place because Satan cynically questioned whether Job loves God for God or merely just loves God for his stuff. You guys remember that? And Job's response here has proven beyond all doubt that he serves and loves God simply for God's own sake irrespective of any blessing he may gain or loss that he may incur because of it. But there's something else I want you guys to notice in Job's response. Job is comforted, we can even say satisfied, not only on the ash heap, but even when he doesn't know why he suffered. The psychologist Viktor Frankl once said that you can get through any what if you know the why. And so suffering, according to Dr. Frankel, makes a little more sense when you know the purpose behind it. But Job proves that you don't need to know why. At the end of the book of Job, Job still doesn't know why he suffered, and we still don't know why we suffer. And yet Job is comforted. But if you're like me, you're probably wondering how. I, mean, I think I can speak for most of us that pain without purpose is the worst how can Job be comforted while still not knowing why he suffered? In fact, Job never finds out. Spoiler alert. And I think after studying this passage, I think I know why. The whole point is that Job must never know why he suffered. I mean, think about it. If Job knew why he suffered and knew what would happen to him and he knew what God and Satan had wagered, wouldn't it be possible for Job to endure suffering only because he knew God would bless him at the end of it all? You guys see, you guys see the problem here? Job can easily manipulate the test and conclude that if he suffers well, then he will be blessed well. The whole point of Job's trials was to test the purity of Job's relationship with God. Job must remain forever ignorant of why he suffers because it jeopardizes whether Job is faithful to God under trial for God or faithful to, tr to God under trial for his stuff. What we learn as readers is that God will sometimes interrupt his normal operations of spiritual or physical blessing by taking it away to prove the sincerity of his people's relationship with him. 
Do we love God for God or do we love God for his stuff? For example, it's like riding a bike with training wheels. Sorry, I didn't bring a bike with training wheels. You can say that you know how to ride a bike, but you don't truly know if you do because you still have training wheels on. It's only when the training wheels are removed that you will know for sure if you can ride a bike or if you'll just get owned by the gravel. When God takes away reason after reason after reason to stay in a relationship with him outside of God himself, and the only reason for staying in a relationship with God is because of God, that's the test of whether you'll stay in it because you love God or because you love something else. You guys guys see what I'm saying? As much as we'd much rather not suffer, as much as I'd much rather not learn any lesson in suffering, as much as I'd like to have kids, suffering becomes necessary because suffering is the only way selfless love to God is actually possible. There's no other way to verify that you love God unless through suffering. Because pain causes us to ask, do I love God for God or do I love God simply because it's convenient to? Because my parents do. Because life is good. Because I've been told to. Because I, I know I'll get straight A's, get into good schools or have a blessed life. Would I still love God if every good thing in my life was stripped away? That is what pain causes us to ask. I think this is the reason why we can never know, nor should we pursue the reason for our own suffering, even though there may be reasons behind it. It's because knowing why we suffer may compromise the integrity of our love for God. Job's continued ignorance of his own sufferings is the only way to demonstrate beyond all doubt the purity of his motives before God. Ignorant suffering is the only way the integrity of our relationship with God can be proved. The book of Job is an exploration of what a relationship with God looks like when it is completely stripped away from all of its obvious benefits. It's the question of whether you are willing to stick with someone when there are no clear or obvious benefits of sticking around them. Because that's when you're pressed to ask, do I like this person just because I like them? Or is there an ulterior reason for why I like them? The message of Job was never about finding a reason for suffering or learning how to suffer well. The book of Job from start to finish has always been about asking, what does a relationship with God look like without mixed motives? It looks like Job on the ash heap, still struggling but still believing. It looks like my friend who, in her own words, is still amazed that she is still a Christian despite all that has happened to her. It looks like Megan who, despite her tears and pain, still holds on to God even when we try, fail, and don't know why. I suspect, too, that searching for the reasons for our own sufferings is not only foolish, but is also distracting. It distracts us from the true answer, which is God himself. He is the answer. The God who became man, the God who dwelt among us and lived with us, the God who experienced everything that we would experience all but the sin, the God on the cross, 
The God out of the empty tomb, the God who will destroy Leviathan, the God who will destroy all evil, the God who will reign over all, the God who will make all things new. This is the God worth holding on to when everything around you fails you. When you are on the ash heap of your own life. The faithful lives of Job, my friend, Megan, all testify that he is worth it. He is the answer. That is the end of wisdom. That's true wisdom. God himself, that's the fear of the Lord. A relationship with God promises a renewed understanding, which brings us to our second point. A relationship with God promises a renewed religion. A relationship with God promises a renewed religion. Take a look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now just to get the elephant in the room out of the way, all that happens to Job from here on out to the end of verse 17 is not payback. It is not conditioned on Job's faithful response to God. That would invalidate the entire message of Job. Job is restored simply because God wanted to. Everything that happens to Job after his suffering is simply due to the unmerited and gracious free gift of God to bless and to restore. And the first restoration that God starts with is Job and his friendships. It begins with one of the most surprising statements in the entire book. My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken what was right of me, like my servant Job has. It demonstrates first that Job suffered not because God was angry at him. God was never mad at Job. But God is clearly and evidently mad at his friends. God does not vindicate Job's three friends, which is probably what his friends had hoped. Instead, God vindicates Job, which I think for probably some of us here, at least some astute readers, are surprised. How? How, how, how can God possibly vindicate Job, vindicate Job? Job has called God an unjust tyrant, a careless judge, a vicious bully who treats the just and the unjust alike. How could God vindicate, vindicate Job? And so before we move on a bit further, Let's just be clear for a moment, okay? That that God vindicates Job does not mean that God approved of everything Job had said. As we've seen in previous chapters, God challenges Job on some of the conclusions that he makes. But despite the foolish things Job concluded about God, Job still spoke rightly of him. Job rightly refuses to easily accept something just because God did it. Job rightly refuses to bow to a God whose goodness is separate from his power. But more importantly, Job spoke rightly of God in the sense that it was precisely because Job loved God and loved being in a relationship with God that he protested to God. Job's cries to God because he loves God, not because he hates him. And this is what one commentator writes, We are forcibly reminded that God, for all of his servants' rude demands, reads between the lines and listens to the heart. I mean, how, that is reassuring. That God knows our hearts, even in all of our imperfect speech. And it's precisely the reason why Job's friends haven't spoken what is right of God as Job has. 
In fact, there's a lesson here. God would much rather prefer Job's imperfect yet faithful speech to that of the perfect yet unfaithful speech of Job's three friends. And God's preference for Job's speech is instructive for us. Job and his three friends represent two different ways of doing religion. Two different ways of doing religion. Doing religion the Job way means that you might not have the prettiest speech, you might not have the most filtered speech, but you have wrestled with, stuck with, and remained with God. Doing religion the Job way means that you might even question God, but you have not given up on God. That's religion the Job way. Religion the Job way is true religion. The religion of Job is the kind of religion that is practiced and not easily seen by others. It's the kind of religion that wrestles with God, that will ask God questions, that will hold God responsible, that will hold on to God, that will ask God to remember them. Like Job, our Christian lives will be full of unresolved waiting and yearning. And it's this unresolved waiting that presses us into a deeper relationship with him. The religion of Job is religion that is saturated with God. By contrast, doing religion the the friends' way means that you may have all the right and factual answers, but you have kept God at an arm's length. Doing religion the friends' way means that you may attend all the right events, say all the right things, believe in a very tidy, well-organized theological system, have a very regimented and strict quiet time, have done all the right things, but you actually have no relationship with God behind all these things that you do. There's no wonder, there's no awe, there's no longing, there's no yearning, there's no desire, there's no desire to pray, to meet, to speak, to hear, and to see the God of their belief system. Therefore, The religion of the three friends is a dead religion. It is dead doctrine and abstract theory because even though the friends have said some things that were factually and technically true, they do not as a whole speak rightly of God because they have no relationship with the God that they're talking about. The friends want a system while Job wants God. And that's the thing. Many of the answers that Job's so-called friends give him are technically true, but it's the technical part that ruins them. They are answers without a personal relationship. It's intellect without intimacy. The answers are slapped onto Job's ravaged life like labels on a Petri dish. The religion of the friends is the kind of religion that we see every Friday and Sunday. It's the kind of religion that goes through their motions every single day with no thought of God. It's the kind of religion that will say all the right answers in small group, but it's obvious that the answers have not gripped the person's heart. It's the kind of religion that performs in order to get, that practices in order to pacify, that attends youth group or an event in order to get a parent off their back or to get the lighthouse stamp of approval. The religion of the friends, to be frank with you, is secular religion. It is a religion that is devoid of God. The reason why God prefers the speech of Job, even though some of his conclusions are whack, is because behind his conclusions is the rage against secularized wisdom that has been disconnected and unmoored from a genuine relationship with God. 
Job is not content to merely have right thoughts of, of God without worship of him. And so what religion have you been practicing? The religion of Job or the religion of the friends? Here's what I don't mean. My dear high schooler, what God desires from you when you are in pain is not perfection. When you are in pain, what God simply desires is you. He just wants you. He wants you to bring all of yourself, your hot mess. And I think all of us have hot messes from time to time. Your frustration, your, imperfect, your, your imperfection, your genuine, honest, raw, and wrestling faith. He wants you, all of you, sins and righteousness mixed. He would rather have a faith that at times may say stupid things about him, but a faith that nevertheless still hangs on to him. A faith that ultimately, despite the pain, doesn't let go of God. What God desires isn't suffering that has been struggled perfectly, but suffering that has been struggled faithfully. Perfection is not the same as faithfulness. Write that in your notes. Get that rubbed into your mind and soul, you lighthouse perfectionist. Faithfulness to God is not performance for God. Faithfulness to God isn't even about having the right emotions for God. Faithfulness to God is simply not abandoning God in your pain. That's it. Faithfulness to God is simply endurance with God. God's preference for Job's speech is as opposed to his friends teaches us that God is far more tolerant far more gracious, far more patient toward those in genuine human searching than the rigidity, the judgment, and the impatience of Job's three friends. And if you still feel afraid of coming to God, there's something that I want you to know from this text. God's requirements of his people when they struggle and undergo suffering like Job's is surprisingly minimal. Not maximal, but minimal. God has surprising latitude with the things that we say and do when we suffer. I mean, just look at Job. He said some whack things about God. Doesn't mean that they're right, but God allows it. God understands pain. God knows that pain sucks. Jesus experienced pain. It hurt him. It doesn't mean that God excuses what we say or do, but that God is incredibly compassionate and kind to us when we do suffer. So go to him. But there's another more subtle reason why God is mad at Job's friends. If you'll remember, Job's three friends were trying to, in their own minds, they were trying to defend God with their theological arguments, but their theology ended up offering Job a temptation. Here's what I mean. If you've forgotten the core message of what the friends have been saying, it can be summed up in, you get what you deserve. So if you repent, then you will be blessed. Just confess your hidden sins, and then you can have your life back. Now, why is this a temptation? It's because, first of all, Job has nothing to confess. That's the point. And so if Job did confess to nothing, it would mean that Job cared more about a restored life than his own integrity or for God himself. 
If Job, if Job followed the advice of his friends, it would demonstrate that Job cared more about the restoration of his pros- prosperity, his property, his children, than his relationship with God. And as good as those things are, it would have placed the gifts above the giver. If Job followed their counsel, Job would have been led away from God rather than toward God. Job would have been reduced to yet another person who was interested in seeking God for personal gain than for God himself. In other words, the counsel of the three friends was subtle counsel to pursue idolatry. What was so bad about the counsel of Job's friends was their subtle but sinister encouragement to be a mercenary worshiper. God, I'll get the job done if you pay me. God, I'll do what you want me to do if you bless me. God, I'll name my kid Jesus if you give me a kid. God, I'll follow you if you do X, Y, Z thing for me. I mean, we do this all the time. When we act like Christians for hire, we effectively try to put God under our debt. So not only, so not only do we not want God, we've also made God our debtor. We expect that God owes us something. The point is that the book of Job tempers our expectations and even guards us from the temptations of living wisely. You know how we're going through our wisdom series on Sundays? The book of Job prevents us from believing that wise living automatically leads to prosperous living. The book of Job is another perspective in wisdom that warns us of the timeless myth that wise living can shield us from unwanted suffering and bad things happening to us. Because the typical response when we encounter hardship and difficulty is, I thought I was doing everything right. I mean, I was, I was reading this book. I was talking to this person. I was listening to this podcast. I come from the right family. I do all the right things. I'm doing everything that my church recommends as wise living. I thought I was living wisely. And so why isn't my life better? Why aren't my problems going away? Living wisely is never meaningless. But the fact that we expect a certain output in our lives reveals that maybe we never wanted to live wisely for its own sake in the first place. Or maybe we never really wanted to live for God for God's sake. Or maybe somewhere along the way, we begin to develop ulterior motives for living wisely. Either way, when we expect our lives to be better because we've been living wisely, it reveals that we sought to live wisely only for the benefits of living wisely. That we do religion only for the benefits of religion. And so what is is God's response to Job's three friends? Take a look at verses 8 and 9. Therefore, now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. There it is. It's foolishness. God says it. For you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Did you notice, by the way, how many times God refers to Job as his servant? God isn't mad at Job. On the other hand, God is exceptionally mad at Job's three friends. 
Most, if not all of us, probably miss the significance of the sevenfold sacrifice that God asks them to bring. Because normally, only one animal is sufficient for sacrifice. But in the case of Job's friends, it takes no fewer than 14 to appease God's anger against the three stooges. But rather than blotting out Job's three friends, rather than wiping them out, as we would think, rather than giving them a taste of their own medicine, God actually does the exact opposite. God chooses to forgive their folly. God chooses to not do what their folly deserves. How God treats Job's friends breaks and destroys the theology of the friends. Because again, according to the theology of the friends, you get what you deserve, right? I mean, it's only fair that the three friends get what they deserve, right? Job's three friends should have gotten judgment. It's only what's just and fair. It's what I would have wanted. I mean, Job's three friends are fools. But thank God that he is not like me. God treats the friends here better than they deserve, thus breaking their theology. In fact, God is the one who initiates their restoration. God is far more willing to forgive than we are to repent. God restores Job's friends, not because of their repentance, but because of his mercy through Job, their intercessor. I mean, it's hard to miss the gospel here. Job's intercession points forward to the intercession of Jesus, who made intercession for us by his blood. Because of Jesus, God does not treat us according to what we deserve. I mean, that's mercy. This is the God who treats us far better than we deserve and treats Jesus far worse than he deserves. That is grace. Job and even his three friends' restoration demonstrates that the principle, you reap what you sow, doesn't work all the time. God doesn't play by the rules. Nor, God doesn't play by that rule because God makes the rules. To say that God must conform to this rule or any rule would mean that God isn't God. God doesn't play by anyone's, rule, anyone's rules except for his own. God would not be put in a box. God will not conform to our expectations of him. The moral logic of the universe, again, isn't judgment, but grace. Which is what makes God's grace not just amazing, but surprising. Because here, God's grace also makes demands and expectations. As a response to the grace of God, Job's friends go and do what God told them to do. Forgiveness from God still means that you need to make restitution to those you wronged. And so Job acts as their priest, and, but it also goes both ways. After they offer their sacrifices, God expects Job to forgive them as well. Job's intercession for his friends demonstrates an important step that we must take when we are wronged. Job wasn't interceding for a bunch of randos. He was interceding for the very same people who tormented him for 20-something chapters. Verse 10 implies that God restores Job only when he forgives his friends. The topic of forgiveness is too, too big of a topic to cover at this point in the sermon, but Job almost has a mini test here. The way that grace works itself out in Job's life is by his forgiveness of his friends. Job's restoration is demonstrated by how he treats the people who wronged him. In his deepened relationship with God, Job understands that a person forgiven much forgives much. The point is that God's generosity changes us. 
God's compassion in our suffering changes how we show compassion to those who suffer. A relationship with God promises a renewed religion. And that brings us to our third and final point. I'll land the plane here. A relationship with God promises a renewed life. Take a look finally at verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the, the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. <clears throat> then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And they called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the, third of the, name, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. I mean, everything has been reversed for Job. But again, what God restores to Job isn't a reward that Job deserves, nor is it an overdue obligation to return back to Job what he lost. Even though Job receives double than what he had the first time, no amount of gain can replace what was lost. Job doesn't, God doesn't restore Job because he suffered well or spoke rightly of God. God gives to Job simply because, well, simply because he's good. That's it. This is the final nail in the coffin of the you reap what you sow principle. While it's a true principle, as we've seen, it doesn't always work. The book of Job prevents this principle from being taken too far by showing us that God takes whenever he wants and God gives whenever he wants. It's not based on what you do or don't do. That's not how God operates and it's never how God operated. The last remaining verses show us that God's prerogative and choice to bless is not conditioned in any way by human effort or goodness. God blesses us simply because he is good, not because we are. God creates the world not because he owed the world existence, but because he simply wanted to. God blessed the world and made it flourish simply because that's who God just is. That's it. Similarly, when you look at the blessing in your life or in the lives of others, It's not because you were more deserving or because others were more deserving of it. Stop comparing. It's simply because God is good. And that's the point of these last eight or so verses. God gives because that's simply who he is. God's disposition toward his people is restoration, is life, it's wholeness, it's blessing, irrespective of whether we deserve it or not. That's a God of grace. The takeaway from the book of Job is that we can anticipate blessing in our lives simply because God is good. 
And when bad things do happen in our lives, they exist to press us into the God who is good, who always does good, who knows our pain and our worries, who deals with it once for all in Jesus Christ, and that through him he will fully eradicate and pain and suffering forever. That's the book of Job's closest answer to the problem of evil and suffering in our world today. Much more can be said, but the last thing that I want us to notice is this. God, Job's greater prosperity at the end demonstrates a pattern in how God will conclude the history of the world. The book of Job opens like Genesis, and tw- like Genesis 1 and 2, in a state of blessedness. But the book of Job closes like Revelation chapters 21 and 22 in a greater state of blessedness. I mean, I don't have to really prove it. You can look there yourself. The pattern is that at the end of time itself, at the close of history, God will make everything better than the first God will make everything better than the first. God's goal isn't just to restore what Job had. God's goal isn't to to just restore the world back to what it was in the garden. God's goal is to take what Job has and bring it to its highest pinnacle. God's final goal is to take the garden and to bring it to to its highest pinnacle. In the same way that God brings Job to a higher glory, God will bring this world to a higher glory. A new heaven and a new earth where the old earth and the old heaven will pass away. And God's pattern for you and me is the same. God will take what we have and raise it to the highest level so that we all with unveiled face Behold, beholding the glory of our Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is the end of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, wonder upon wonder that you would lavish such grace upon grace upon us. Father, we recognize that this world is great, but as great as this world is, it is fading and passing away. And Job's life testifies to it. Our lives testify to it. Our lives are both a mixture of both righteousness and sin, both goodness but also brokenness. And so, Father, we long for the new creation, an old creation that will pass away where the new will come. And, Father, we thank you for the great promise that you show us here in these, in these final verses that we perhaps might not receive the prosperity of Job in the same way, but we will receive the pattern that we will receive something better than what we had before. And so, Father, I pray for our dear high schoolers here. I pray that you would be with them. And, Father, you know them. You know their hearts and you know their struggles, what they've been facing, what they've been enduring. 
and my heart breaks for them. But Father, I also know that your heart breaks for them too. And so Father, I, I pray that you would comfort them, that they would be comforted by your words in these 17 verses. I pray that you would help them to be raw, to be honest with you, that they would be willing to even be open, be willing to say the hard things, to be willing to admit to the hard things while also remaining faithful to you. And so, Father, I pray for our high schoolers. I pray for, I pray, I desire so much for them, but more than anything else, I desire that they would know you and that they would see you. Thank you, Father. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.